Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is LaShawn, and I'm here with Ben, Sully, Linda, and Gordon. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. In the previous episode, we looked at the global burden of road traffic deaths and injuries. The next step, after identifying a problem, is taking action. However, global and national safety goals and targets are no easy feat. This requires sustained efforts in coordination and management to tackle the system's issue of road safety. In this episode, we will look at the role of leadership and institutional management and some of the best practices that can be used to address this issue. So why do you guys think leadership and institutional management play a role in improving road safety? Leadership plays a role in everything, man. Can you define institutional management? Can you define it? (laughs) Is there an echo? (laughs) (laughs) Forgive the technical difficulties, everyone. There's an echo that sounds different than the person that originally said it. Just let's just talk. Cause like, if like, what do you mean by institutional management? Are you talking about like infrastructure that we mentioned before? Are you talking about government funding? Because then that plays into leadership. I think it's a combination of all of it. Institutional management is having a strategic plan, Mm. um, having targets, having uh, measurable targets for a specific goal. So in this case, it would be like having a framework for road safety that, that there's funding, there's targets, there's a timeline that's uh, a systems approach rather than isolated. Mm-hmm. I think it encompasses all of it. I think you can, um, I'm not sure semantically you can do this, but for the purposes of our discussion, institutional could mean a cross sectorial approach within government, right? So mm-hmm. I think from our previous episode, um, we've seen that prevention efforts and you know the allocation of resources and you know, the health system side of things aren't really aligned. When we have a health in all policies approach, road safety should definitely benefit from that. So, Right. So it seems like in the last episode, we talked about how the UN incorporated uh, traffic safety into the sustainable development goals. Now, at the country level, whose responsibility is it to actually incorporate this and kind of take measures towards achieving some of these goals and targets. Right. And I think that's a good point because we talked a lot about the governments being responsible and obviously governments would be releasing the, these reports or these um, deadlines or goals. But another aspect of it is that we also have to consider private organizations and community organizations holding the government accountable for the goals that they set themselves. So I think leadership can play in both the private and the public sector. So in terms of the way, I guess, most countries are set up, um, whether it's low, middle income or, you know, higher income countries, there is um, a ministry of transportation, which is usually a branch within, you know, the whole government. So when roads are being built or, you know, there's issues with um, road safety, I would imagine that that falls under the jurisdiction of, you know, the infrastructure parts of government or the transport branch of government. But I'm not sure how much of a role public health plays in the design of like highways or streets in in urban areas or rural areas. I'm not sure how much of a cross 
sectoral approaches apply to those. So, 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 so let, let, let me let me stop you there. So, do you think public health should have a role in this? Within Alberta, we have a Department of Injury Prevention within Alberta right. Health Services. And right. in injury prevention, we talk a lot about traffic safety and road safety. And we give guidelines for, you know, things like... Um, car seats, booster seats. Mm. And mm. so there's there's already a conversation within public health surrounding injury prevention in regards to road safety. And to me, it only makes sense that those same voices would also just be at the table in terms of urban planning infrastructure in regards to designing roads because they have the same goal. Right. And in Ontario, the, the health units typically have a portfolio that looks at road safety and um, provides kind of guidance to the local municipalities, you know, some recommendations on how to bring down injuries and make the the roads safer. Um, But I don't know how much that information is factored into decision-making for the infrastructure Mm -hmm. sector, right? I don't know how much, I don't know if telling them that, you know, there's been, the the rates have increased um, threefold, since last year, I don't know how much that drives decision making into, um, you know, I've seen, I think everyone's seen bike lanes pop up recently. And even those, those barriers that now separate the car lanes from the bike lanes, mm-hmm. I think that's helpful for mm-hmm. and, and making the cyclists feel safer and, and some passengers feel safer. So maybe it, it has um, had an impact, but I'm not sure how much it factors in. And I think that's the heart of the discussion um, LaShawn was bringing up that mm-hmm. the institutional management of things. So the kind of getting away from that siloed approach mm-hmm. to, you know, you, you're in a ministry of transport, you deal with roles, public health and healthcare deals with people when they're sick or prevent them from getting sick. And how do we marry the two together for the best results? And I guess it would depend too on who's building, if we're talking specifically about roads, who's building the road, how mm-hmm. is it being funded? And I was looking into it and I found that in Canada, Roads are funded through a mix of options. So sometimes it's through federal or national funding. Other Mm -hmm. times it's provincial and other times it's public-private partnerships. So there's not one set way. Mm -hmm. And so that would determine who's involved as well in the decision-making process. Yeah. And I was even thinking um, with the goals, so the UN goals, the sustainable development goals that LaShawn mentioned in our previous episode about cutting road traffic deaths by half and such and such. Um, I'm wondering if the kind of local municipalities in, you know, in Canada, for example, in the different provinces, um, I'm wondering if they also have those similar goals, right? You know, when you're building um, sustainable cities or you're kind of making modifications to make things more bike friendly, are there goals in mind that, you know, the reason they're doing this is um, to reduce the fatalities that cyclists have by X amount. I don't think we hear that very much. So um, I think if one one thing this has taught us is, and Ben always says this too, mm-hmm. to have things being goal-driven, I, we don't really hear much about what those goals are. Um, so we can't really know if it's been successful or not. Yeah, it, it seems that from my experience, at least in Toronto, the local jurisdiction has a lot of power in terms of reducing speed limits and adding speed cameras or red light cameras. And so they have the power to do that, I guess, based on their municipality. It's true. Um, I, I think I think that's an example, though, um, because mm-hmm. in Canada, 
and specifically the province of Ontario, public health gets at least a portion of their funding from the municipalities. So just based on the nature of that agreement, um, there can be crosstalk happening and recommendations can be made and they might be more inclined to act upon them. Um, but when we get into, like Linda said, the mixed funding, you know, how much of a role does the federal government play on, on the broader sense in, in Canada or other countries? Um, I'm not sure. So Yeah, we'll, we'll get into a, a really cool example with Sweden in a second. But I, I also wanted to just get your thoughts on something I've been thinking about lately. So we've been discussing over this episode and the last episode, you know, the significant burden countries face, especially the low and middle income countries. And, you know, they might not have the same road infrastructure. They may not have access to the same safe vehicles as us, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, compounding these issues are the fact that maybe there are more prevalent issues in terms of what people deem is more important, such as um, certain diseases that may take priorities in governments or institutions. Mm -hmm. So my question really is, how do we kind of highlight road safety as an issue that institutions should come up with comprehensive plans with, especially in the context of low and middle income countries where there might be competing priorities? I think we mentioned it in the previous episode, if the kind of social argument with um, years of life loss and yeah, disability adjusted life years, which meaning that, you know, the productivity that people lose when they sustain kind of a, a permanent or partial disability and how that affects their productivity. Um, if that's not a good enough argument for policy decision makers and considering that there is a finite, resources are finite no matter what country you are. Um, so um, if, if there's an argument made from the, the economic sense that mm -hmm. the cost savings um, hopefully spur some action, but the problem with cost savings as we, and I might botch this um, because I, you know, I'm not an e economist, but we always talk about the problem in public health is that the dollar is valued more uh, now than it will be valued in terms of cost savings. So mm -hmm. while we can make mm -hmm. an economic argument for, you know, the, the economic burden of road traffic deaths, fatalities is $600 billion or whatever it is. The reality is, is by building a road today, you don't get that back right away. So, right. Uh, it, you know, when people look at things as just like an investment to if you have personal finances, if you have to wait longer to re reap those benefits, you're less inclined to do so. And it, it's the same thing when you look at the government investments into public health. So I think another aspect of that is when we're investing in infrastructure for road development, like, for example, speed bumps, etc. There's a lot of wear and tear. So an initial investment for a, right. a, a road safety measure, right? It's not going to have the same mm. lifelong uh, prevention as something else in public health, right? So that road bump mm -hmm. you put in or whatever other measure, it might be gone again. Or just the yeah, roads. Exactly. Or even just the roads, like there's potholes, et cetera. <laughs> that, that might all oh, just yeah. be great point. gone in five years. So now you're having that conversation again of, hey, we need you to invest in this again. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a great point, Ben. Um, whether um, like the climate and the weather um, impacts like the the longevity of those kinds of things you mm -hmm. mentioned, and you know, I'm just remembering Jamaica. They because it's so rainy all the time. Um, 
they they'd fix the road and by the next year it's gone back to the thing and then we talk about how costly those materials are um and you know that will influence how long those materials can last and yeah that's a great point the, it's not like a like a permanent fix you know you have to make there's maintenance how much is the maintenance right. cost another aspect mm. is if is the policy window even open to have that conversation again man's getting us all sad man <laughs> sorry sorry <laughs> more optimistic yeah. Yeah. i was going to say yeah. an incentive um, an incentive to get people on board is to, is to show that preventing road traffic injuries and deaths is is possible and it's not mm. an inevitable thing that someone will die or be injured on the road. It is a mm. preventable thing. And so if we can show that, you know, seatbelts works, safe roads works, mm. um, you know, legislation surrounding drinking and driving, mm. um, helmets, child restraints, those things can have a positive effect. Mm. Then perhaps that can gain more support, more momentum. People won't feel like, oh, I can't do anything about this. But actually, wait, we all have a role to play. Yeah. And making mm-hmm. thank you statement. thank you linda you saved the episode <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so yeah that's a good point so i think the way we ended up kind of looking at it is road roads are bust right and what you're saying is it's not roads are bust there's other things as well that are um you could say you know maybe more cost effective in that they don't require this huge investment um mm-hmm. that can have an impact on saving lives so that's a great point so as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about Sweden, who is recognized worldwide as a global leader in road safety performance. And so um, with their case, they found that between 1990 and 2015, they were able to reduce the number of road traffic deaths by 66%. Mm. So how, how did they do this, you may be asking? Well, a crucial aspect involved long-term planning evidence-based approaches to their interventions that they used, and strong institutional delivery and leadership. Mm. So w- what were some of the things that they did? I know they, um, in October 1997, they adopted something that may be well-known in other countries called Vision Zero. Yeah, so I think, simply put, Vision Zero is just kind of um, a systems thinking approach or framework, whoever you might call it, to that focuses on road safety. So we discussed some of the weak the weaknesses of, you know, the coordination of of leadership in and how that kind of served as a barrier to getting things done in the space of road safety. And Vision Zero simply just um, puts all the crucial elements together to come together with the optimistic goal of achieving um, no road traffic fatalities. Right. So what what are some of these aspects Vision Zero kind of encompasses? So, yeah, from a framework perspective, looking at it compared to a traditional approach, well, in a traditional approach, we say that traffic deaths are inevitable, whereas in Vision Zero, they're preventable. In traditional approach, we're assuming that human behavior must be perfect, but in, in Vision Zero, we account for the human failings in our approach and our strategies. And another piece of Vision Zero compared to traditional approach is that in a traditional approach, um, it's very centered on preventing collisions, but in Vision Zero, just like the piece of integrating human failure, um, we recognize that s- some collisions might occur, and it's about preventing um, fatalities and severe injuries from these crashes. And it's more of a harm reduction approach. More of a, exactly, more, mm-hmm. yeah. more of a harm reduction, more of a harm reduction systems-based approach to mm-hmm. saving lives in a way that is less costly. 
I had I had a question, or I guess a thought to just pose to the group. So Sweden, like, I mean, I've never been to Sweden, although I want to, but notoriously, mm-hmm. I just in, I have that thought, like, oh, Sweden, you know, higher taxes, yeah. one of those like Nordic countries, so they pay a lot in taxes. So to me, something like Vision Zero, perhaps they have more capacity to fund it mm-hmm. because of. Just mm-hmm. the cultural commitment to we pay for taxes to help fund social programs or mm-hmm. you know create better societies. So I was wondering, do you think because of the way their taxation system is set up, perhaps that is why they were able to be more successful in Vision Zero? Because um, I think it said that they they were able to reduce road traffic deaths by sixty six percent over right. a span of what like. Oh, from 1990 to 2015, mm. um, that's a large increase, and it shows it's successful. But is it because of the the way their society is set up already? I think um, another piece to that, Linda, um, to take it one step further, if people are more generally okay with paying higher taxes to get these, you know, programs and initiatives um, that focus on public health or prevention, the uptake would be higher, right? So if you think of even just um, road safety education, then I'm not sure what the data is, but maybe they're even then more likely to wear a seatbelt, right? Or less likely to drink and drive uh, because they're, there's kind of that ownership piece that you're saying, Linda, that mm-hmm. might that might help with the uptake and people um, taking these things more seriously. Like we're paying into this. Right, right. And right. I'm like not here to say, you know, you have to have a high taxation system for this to be effective. But I'm wondering, what do you think in terms of a place where it's set up differently, could this still be right. successful? Exactly. The scalability is like, what about yeah. Sweden that made this possible? Yeah. Um, is, yeah. is it, mm-hmm. it's, it can't be just about um, seat belts or drinking driving laws or car seats because Canada. It was the institutional management. Institutional <laughs> management. Jeez. There we go. No, it, it's definitely true. Like if you have your leadership talking about these issues, like vision zero and having this plan and commitment to the reduction of road-related traffic deaths and injuries, as a it first of all highlights this as an important issue to the citizens, and so they're more likely to you know just be aware of it. And as a result, I guess the ideal would be some sort of behavioral changes. But that's where the institutional commitment comes down to. For example, in Toronto, we see that Mayor John Tory um, in 2016 announced the plan to reduce the number of people killed and injured in traffic by 20% within a decade. So even though Targets, these might goals. be, yeah, yeah, even though they, they like, hopefully this is a realistic goal based on the data in Toronto, mm. but to have this commitment and these goals and targets set is a great first step. Mm-hmm. Goals are Oof, Strong leadership. What are some of those interventions that are considered best practices that countries and, and jurisdictions can adopt to reduce these down to the target levels that they've set? So according to the Global Status Report for Road Safety from WHO, um, there are three. There are kind of five risk factors that were highlighted when it comes to traffic deaths and injuries. So basically having enforcement legislation on these key risk factors are, are said to be critical components of an integrated strategy to prevent road traffic deaths. So these risk factors are speed, drinking and driving, motorcycle helmet use, the use of seatbelts, and child restraint systems. So now at this point of our discussion, we're going to go through each ones and kind of have a little discussion on each of these risk factors. 
starting off with managing speed. So why why is speed important to consider and especially have um you know a, a legislative policy lens when looking at this issue of speed? As the signs always say speed kills. Yeah. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um I think it just it makes sense the faster you're going if you have a collision to something the less your chance of surviving and escaping without an injury. So addressing speed um is an important part of the systems thinking approach to road safety. Okay, so I think first of all, it's very important to maybe just have a quick discussion on why it's bad to drink and drive. So mm. obviously alcohol impairs your decision making abilities and your motor skills. And a lot of driving is hinged on both of those two factors being a key uh point of not being involved in a collision. So if you're impaired in both aspects, you're basically asking for a collision. And I think even um the response time element of it, right? Um you know, when mm-hmm. you go to driving school or you're you know practicing for your your licensing test, um they emphasize defense and defensive driving, right? Mm-hmm. So um part of defensive driving is to anticipate the errors of other drivers and respond in a timely manner to you know to prevent any issues from happening and mm-hmm. if you're impaired you're less likely to be able to do that effectively so that's a huge element in terms of um preventing um death and injuries from collisions for sure yeah and uh, i think in terms of policy and legislation um in terms of the best practices um the who recommends um that you have that you focus or you you have a component of any sort of law that looks at your blood alcohol concentrations. Mm-hmm. So, in general, uh they place a limit for the general population and the young and novice drivers. Yeah, why do you think there's different uh limits for yeah. if you're a younger driver compared to an older driver? I think it has to go with the development of the brain because we know that the brain mm. is still developing up until you're mm. 25 or around that age. So, if you have your driver's license at 16, that's still a number of years before you're in a in air quotes, fully developed. So I think that's why mm. they have that distinction between physiology. So you're saying at the same alcohol or blood alcohol concentration, the younger person will pro- will likely be more vulnerable to the effects of alcohol. Yeah, yeah. So that that's one factor as uh-huh. well. And there's also mm. the cultural factor of younger people being more riskier with alcohol, as we see in the data. So maybe that's why there's a difference mm-hmm. there and they're trying to make it more preventative for the younger population. So what are some of, I guess, the key interventions that governments or institutions can kind of use to prevent drink driving from occurring? Mothers Against Drunk Driving. <laughs> yeah. M-A-D-D. Mad. Have some good commercials. Shout out to M-A-D-D. <laughs> oh, those commercials, like some of the commercials out yeah. there are very yeah. The very, one where the glasses keep on stacking on each very other intense. and they get more yeah. blurry. Yeah. Or- mm-hmm. okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. Effective media campaigns. Absolutely. Effective media yeah. campaigns. And even you think of even when you go to a bar or even if you go to someone's house, um, the person or the host or whatever you want to call it can be held liable if the person leaving your event um, operates a car under the influence of of um, alcohol. Mm-hmm. So that is oh, one wow. of yeah that is one of the interventions. So um, mm-hmm. if a bartender, to my knowledge, part of the liquor license is being um, understanding that um, not to overserve your clientele, and if they do go 
out and operate a vehicle and getting to an accident, that establishment can be charged. So that's mm-hmm. that's one of those, um, maybe one of the more downstream interventions, but um, yeah. it can be effective if if right. the person serving knows they can be liable. If anything mm-hmm. else, people do do or don't do things out of fear. So the fear of being of getting into trouble, even though you should be motivated by doing the right thing, by being altruistic, should drive your decisions. Reality is sometimes fear of consequence is a lot is a way to go in a lot of cases. Okay, so the third one is increasing motorcycle helmet use. So why do you all think that's important? Motorcycle helmet use. If you look at just motorcycles, and if you look at just you know cyclists in general wearing helmets when they're wearing a bike, yeah, we talked about how um, one of the vulnerable groups of road death fatalities and injuries are people on two and three wheelers, and we know that the primary cause of death after a collision is a head injury. So it then makes sense that measures to wear some kind of protective thing on your head would be beneficial. And not to mention the cost savings because being treated in neuro rehab for a head injury mm-hmm. compared to the cost of a, hel- a helmet, uh, substantial cost saving. Mm. So some of like the key interventions that were recommended were I guess laws enforcing wearing helmet, which is very hard to do. Um, I'll get to that in a second. Um, standards for motorcycle helmets. So the specifications on specific helmets mm-hmm. that you wear. Penalties for not using your helmet. And again, like we mentioned to the, for the other risk factors, kind of more informational educational campaigns right. that'll help with the awareness. Health of promotion. This. I'm telling you. Exactly. Health promotion. And so that kind of leads me to talking about some of my experiences in Thailand. Um, even in the main city of Bangkok, where I spent a lot of time, those roads are wild. There's motorcyclists everywhere going in every which direction. Um, a lot of them, and especially their passengers who ride behind them, are not wearing helmets, mm-hmm. which is uh, very, uh, very sad. Mm-hmm. But uh, there has been a lot of progress in this. So um, in Thailand, they actually passed a a helmet wearing law, which basically found that individuals increased the use of helmets by fivefold. And this resulted, as we all mentioned, a, a decrease in deaths associated by injuries on bikes. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Qu- question for, hmm. I'm asking about Thailand, but we can open it up to other countries as well. Yeah. In order to ride a motorcycle in Thailand, you have to have a license from the government to operate the vehicle. I, I'm I'm not sure about that, but from personal experience, it seems that in different areas of Thailand, especially the rural areas, there's not a lot of regulation or enforcement. So it's not uncommon that I've heard of a lot of, you know, younger children riding riding bikes mm. in their local areas. So But the reason so the reason I'm asking, so if we look at Canada, and I'm pretty sure the United States, if you're a cyclist, so if you just have a bike and it's not, it doesn't have an engine, right? Mm. You do not need a formal license to operate it, right? So I'm wondering mm. how the enforcement comes in when you didn't necessarily have to pass some kind of test to show that you're competent to ride a, you know, a bicycle as opposed to a motorcycle, which you do need a license to operate legally. So I'm wondering if that makes enforcement more difficult when 
the vehicle that you're operating to transport is not necessarily you don't need to be licensed to to operate it and you know and the specific example we're talking about is a motorcycle wearing a helmet while while you're riding a motorcycle mm-hmm. uh, compared to wearing a helmet while you're riding a bike and you don't necessarily have to have a license to even ride a bike and then young children yeah wear ride bikes right so we're going to give 8 year olds tickets to give their parents you know tickets I mean? yeah I support that. <laughs> and then and then we get into the social equity piece with if right. lower income people are more likely to ride bicycles and can't afford helmets and you're ticketing those people there's a social equity issue. So another risk factor that was mentioned in the report was using seat belts. And I don't think I have to ask you guys why seat belts are important but I'll ask you guys anyways why <laughs> Why seat belts? Yeah, so seat belts uh, have been shown to reduce the risk of death amongst mm-hmm. um, you know drivers in the the driver and the front seat passenger by up to fifty yeah. percent, and um, reduce it by twenty five percent from people in the rear seat occupants. So um, mm-hmm. that would be in terms of when we look at public health and prevention, those numbers are really good. Um, in public health, if you get even a ten percent reduction in anything. That's considered yeah. pretty good. So, considering that you can cut something in half mm-hmm. by having a seatbelt policy, that is mm-hmm. that should be extremely desirable. Yeah, because all of that scales up, right? Because ten percent of like millions of people—that's a lot. Right. So, what we're really talking about here at the end of the day is prevention. We wear mm-hmm. we wear these seatbelts to yeah. prevent an incident or an adverse incident from happening to prevent us from flying through the window, and I th- I think. Have you guys heard of a like a huge prevalence of people not wearing seatbelts, like in certain populations? Oh yeah, I'm not sh- I'm yeah. not sure. But, I mean, I but can give an example. It, oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. This is not to generalize, yeah. but my experience yeah. in Ghana, wearing seatbelts. I mean, I'd sit in a taxi and I'd be putting on a seatbelt, and they'd look at me like, "Why are you putting on your seatbelt?" Or mm. like, it's it's um very sometimes if it let's say it's been used for a long time it can like stain your clothing the seat belt and so often people are like oh don't wear it it's it's dirty the seat belt and so oh. it mm. it just depends i mean risk perception it depends yes. what's the norm it depends the type of vehicle you're in um and so yeah it's prevention but if that's not something you see often people getting ejected from a car you may yeah. not think the seat belt is necessary yeah another aspect of that in the culture is that you wear a seat belt the driver might think oh you think i'm a bad driver you think we're going to get into a exactly. collision? Exactly. It's insulting. Exactly. So you're like, just cough. And they ask you. Yeah, straight, straight up, they'll ask you like, Why, what, what do you think is going to happen? Why are you wearing your exactly. seatbelt? And that, that, goes, that goes back to your earlier point, Linda, too, about motivation. So we're motivated to follow the speed limits because we don't want to get pulled over. And unfortunately, too, in a lot of cases with the seatbelt, it's, oh, crap, I just passed the police and I don't have my seatbelt on. Right. So it's unfortunately not motivated by preventing severe injuries and death. It's motivated by not being penalized, unfortunately. But that's true with all aspects of road traffic, really. N- not really. I think that the helmet one's an interesting example, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, okay, you can kind okay. of, I mean, if, if, if a helmet, if there's no laws to wear a helmet and you're wearing a helmet, it must mean that you recognize the value of a helmet. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, if- and I think like part of it is motivated by your safety and others, but like it's maybe not as much of a priority as your as you not wanting to get 
a penalty. Right, so, right. So it's, right. it's there, is, but it's maybe, yeah. Which is, that's good because we have that, you know, the, what's it called? The intervention ladder where. Yeah. The oh. Nuffield or oh. Newfield intervention ladder. Mm. So at the base of the ladder and it's just, you do nothing or you simply monitor the current situation. And then it goes up vertically on the levels of intervention. So it goes from doing nothing to providing information. Uh, then you enable choice. Then you offer a guided choice through changing the default. Mm. Um, so for mm. making healthier choices, the default option. And then the step above that is a guided choice through incentives. So you use financial or other incentives to guide people to pursue certain activities. So mm. this comes to mind, like when you give people money for recycling. Um, and then and, uh, above- another example too, is if you, if you don't have any um, collisions on your, your car insurance, then you can get like a rebate. Yeah. Relatable example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. To road traffic. Mm-hmm. And then above that is choice through disincentive. So mm-hmm. like a speeding ticket mm-hmm. um, to influence people to not pursue a certain activity. And then above that is restricting choice where you regulate to restrict the options available. And then the very last choice. So at the highest top part of the ladder is to eliminate choice where you regulate to eliminate a choice entirely. Mm-hmm. and this all comes from the Newfield Council on Bioethics. I'm glad you brought it up, Linda, because in the, the, the World Health Organization report that we're referencing throughout this discussion, they consistently indicated that um, typically stronger measures are more effective. And as we go mm-hmm. up that, um, that policy ladder that you mentioned, um, when there's no alternatives, um, people are more likely to follow because they're motivated by having healthier behaviors or they're motivated by avoiding punishment. So that's a good point. So with that in mind, let's head on to the last risk factor, which is child restraint use. So what we know from the literature is that child restraints are highly effective in reducing injury and death to child occupants. And the use of these restraints actually lead to a reduction of around 60% in deaths. So what are some of these I guess, laws that the WHO recommends to implement in different countries? You know, what I found really interesting from this is that the WHO recommends best practice is to have child restraints in place until the child is 10 years old Mm -hmm. or 135 Mm -hmm. centimeters in height. Mm -hmm. But in Canada, we do not enforce that. And I was shocked too, man. Yeah. And I, I, I saw this and I was like, I know I was not in a booster seat until 10 yep. years old. I wasn't. 10. Wow. And yeah. it's, but in Alberta anyway, it's a recommendation, but it's not law. Mm. And so when people mm. hear that, hmm. how many of us are even aware that this recommendation is in place until 10 years old? And if you hear a recommendation versus uh, an enforced law, how do you perceive the necessity? A, a, fine, a fine versus a no fine. Yeah. Or let's say you, you can't afford a booster seat. They're not cheap. Exactly. Mm. I thought it was interesting. I didn't know this at all. But even you think of the example, and I think going back to your examples of being in taxis when you're in Ghana and similar experience for me when I'm in Jamaica, first of all, cars have a limit to the amount of passengers it can have. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes in certain countries, mm. um, you end up with maybe 
three or four more people than you should have in your car, mm-hmm. right? So oh, way more in some right? cases. Right, so, sure. I'm just way being more. right. So so on the trunk, so car, yo, on the roof. Yeah. So cars, right? So vehicles are built with this seat, the number of seat belts that you need for the number of passengers that should be in your car. So if you go beyond that, you can't have seat belts. And in, in the example with the, um, the, the child restraints or the child car seats, if you're having, mm-hmm. and my experience in Jamaica too, when, I, when my parents were carrying me around and maybe they've had to use taxis, if the taxi driver needs to pick up seven people in his midsize sedan, you can't take up two seats with a car seat. That's oh. going to infringe upon mm-hmm. his, his, you know, the return on investment, so to speak, of what his trips that he makes, right? So um, if you look at it too, in those developing countries where the gig economy or the informal work sector, where people rely on that form of transport to, to bring income to their family, um, you're not really willing to sacrifice two spots in your car to have one child in a car seat. Mm. So is this profit over people or like, and not to bash people, but it's like, this is the society we've created. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, but then it goes, I think in terms of the social determinants of health, I think this is one where you just have to go more upstream to, you know, they're doing it for um, economic well-being. Maybe, yeah. you know, that the economic part of it has to be addressed rather than you shouldn't have a child not in a car yeah. seat in your car. So we wrapped up on talking about these five different risk factors, but there are different considerations that go beyond this that the WHO did also recommend to look into. Mm. So one of those are reducing distracted driving. And we know... um, Cell phones. Exactly. (laughs) With the increase of cell phone use and accessibility, more drivers, especially young and novice drivers, are, you know, being distracted by their phones, texting while driving calling people while driving, FaceTiming while driving, you know. FaceTiming? So, yeah. <laughs> Why is this a concern? Yeah, distracted driving increases the chance, just like being impaired um, while driving, whether it's, you know, we didn't really talk too much about cannabis in Canada and how that has changed the game for enforcing laws of drivers being impaired and such and such. Yeah, that's definitely a factor. But that's a hefty fine in Alberta anyway, if you're mm. driving and you get caught using your phone. Yeah. I think it's mm. almost three hundred dollars plus demerit points. Jeez. Well deserved. Oof. Do you yeah. think do you think that's well deserved? Yeah, it's a deterrent. It needs to be even more. Yeah, it could be more. <laughs> I think I think the problem is in terms of the effectiveness of it, of the people that actually do it, maybe ten percent of them are caught by police is limited capacity, right? So it's more sustainable to maybe the health promotion side of it to um, just communicate that it's just not a good idea and maybe make healthier choices, easier choice. So with that said, the point of public health is to create supportive environments for people to fill their potential to be healthy. Mm -hmm. Another thing is to reduce the number of preventable deaths. And if technology Mm -hmm. has a role to play where the reality is um, cell phones and that kind of social media connection has become a fabric of our society now it's going to stay here for the foreseeable future and it's about building an environment around that to make people safe while they're driving so we have discussed the importance of institutional management and leadership along with interventions and the ideas from a legislative perspective to reduce the burden of road traffic deaths and injuries 
Remember to always wear your seatbelts and obey your local traffic laws. Stay safe. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.